It is always astonishing to me. Uh, let me share with you before we begin our, our continued study in Ephesians. Uh, that it is always astonishing to me that people who come into my counseling office have so little grasp on the gospel itself. Now, I understand why that is. I, I don't fault them necessarily personally. Uh, most of these people have been in the church for many years. Some have grown up in the church. Some even are children of uh, pastors leaders in the church, uh, but they have failed miserably to grasp the implications and apply those implications to their, their own lives of the gospel. Let me say that again. The average American Christian is in crises today because they have heard enough of the gospel some form of a reductionist form of the gospel that may or may not have, but may have led them to um, a genuine conversion, but they have not heard the gospel in its fullness in order to apply the implications of that conversion to transformation in their life. And so they have enough of the gospel to have had a genuine conversion experience, but they are like orphaned children who lack adequate care and therefore are poorly clothed, poorly fed, lacking attention and nurture. They are abandoned, they are abused, they are neglected, and yet, they are within the family. I mean, it's one thing to be an unbeliever, to be an open defiance to the true God, living in unbelief, and experience the, the tragic consequences of such a life. It's another thing altogether, however, to be living within the walls of a church or within the community of what calls itself the church, having heard just enough of the gospel to have responded in conversion and the Spirit moved, as the Spirit moved upon their hearts through grace and faith that they were actually regenerate people but then have failed to move on to maturity. And please hear me now. That failure has consequences. No one ever comes into my office from a Christian background and says to me, you know, I, I really want to be a superficial and shallow, immature Christian. No one ever says that. It's not their fault any more than there are orphaned children experiencing the orphan life even while they're living within homes with parents. 
and they're sorely neglected, even abused and abandoned within the home with parents down the hall. It's the same experience for many Christians in America today. And the tragic thing is that, that most Christians aren't aware of it. Most Christians are oblivious to the spiritual malnourishment with which they're living. They're oblivious. They have gotten used to it. They're in a position where the abuse and the abandonment and neglect within the church has become so normative that they are used to it. They're certain that it has everything to do with how they were raised or, or the fact that they are uh, participating in some form of addiction now to cope. Or there's, there's, the last thing that they will tell me is that, well, Rick, I'm coming to you because I'm spiritually uh, malnourished and I'm a spiritually um, immature Christian. And I'm living the consequences of that stat status. Now, if there's marital problems, it's because one or the other works too hard or works too long or because there's been a, um, an extramarital affair or there's, there's you know, there's all the reasons people come to counseling or to therapy. But the last thing that they will say is that, well, you know, my church experience is, is very, is very um, uh, unsatisfying. I don't feel fed there. I don't feel like I'm growing there. I mean, especially if they've been locked into a tradition for two or three generations. And they're so loyal to that tradition that they've ceased to hear the voice of Jesus himself. So these people come into my office laboring under a theological system that perverts the new covenant and the work of the Spirit. They're steeped in the culture. And their church looks more oftentimes like a neighborhood community center because there's lots of activity. There's lots of cars in the parking lot on Sunday, perhaps. But it's devoid of spiritual life. Listen, America is in crises socially. The family is in crises. Suicides are on their way up. Addiction is on its way up. Evil is at work within society and within the home. And yes, within the church. Listen, if you don't think that the devil comes to church, you're kidding yourself. I have to, if I'm ever asked to speak at a church or to visit a church, I, I always have to go very boundaried up. I have to be very equipped with the full armor of God when I walk into the church. Now, you would think, well, if I'm walking into City Hall, yeah, yeah. If I'm walking into a grocery store, that's a good thing to be, is have the full armor of God. But when you realize that you need to get boundaried up, you need to get fully armored up in order to step into an average church in America, 
you realize what's happened. That the devil has come to church. I have people, and I'm speaking now from a wealth of experience and observation and training. It is very common for people to come to me and say, Christian people, lovely Christian people who are suffering horribly, and they don't make the connection between how they're being taught, how they're being treated at church, and that suffering. They come with stories of telling how people, certain people within the church are treating them in a gap. They're gaslighting them. They're, uh, they're verbally abusing them. They're manipulating them. They're going one up on them. And they don't understand it because, after all, that's not how the people in the church should behave, right? No, it's not. I tell them. No. No. Evil. That's evil. So we gather once a month a group of people in our home on a Sunday morning to minister to these spiritually abused people. The good news for them is that they have come to understand that they are spiritually abused, neglected, abandoned. They are people who are genuinely Christians, most of them, I'm certain of it, who have had a genuine, regenerate experience. They are in Christ, but they simply cannot play church anymore. They can't sit through another silly improvisation comic act called a sermon. They can't participate one more Sunday in a rock concert that is called worship. They can't be bludgeoned one more Sunday to give 10% of their gross income under the threat of an ancient Malachi curse that was applied to only to Israel at the moment, but no longer applies under the New Covenant. But they're still scraping to get 10% of their gross income to the church, either to avoid the curse or to be blessed, to prosper, which is what their leaders are telling them. You get my picture, right? So we gather on these first Sundays of the month as church orphans, those who are recovering from the church. And it isn't even the church in truth. It isn't even really the genuine. It isn't the church of Christ. It is the church of something else. It is, is something, it is, an, is a, a satanic dominated organization that is making a mockery of the church is what it is. And very few people will only stand up and say, well, that's what this is. They be, we, we so easily put up with it. That's the problem. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells his uh, readers that they put up with these kind of things. He says, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, 
or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. You put up with it easily enough. See, throughout church history, there has been a tolerance of the local church to this kind of thing. And when it becomes normative, we hit a new low. So we are doing this study in Ephesians once a month because it is a very applicable letter. It is a very curative, if you will, to what ails us and to what ails those who have suffered spiritual abuse. And everyone, I would suggest that almost everyone who's been in the church for any length of time has suffered some level of neglect, or abuse, even abandonment but at the hands of church leaders. So what we do is we gather every month and we pray. We are studying Ephesians, which we're going to do in just a moment here. And we are um, taking communion and we're loving one another. We're learning to love one another. We're learning to help facilitate the Lord's healing for church orphans so that they can be recovered. And we see the hands, the Lord's hand in this. We are aware of the good shepherd who leaves the ninety and nine and goes finds the one who's caught in the thickets of false Christianity, surrounded by wolves and plucks that one lamb out of that thicket, puts it on his shoulders, and walks back to the flock. That's what we do once a month. We leave the 90 and 9 to go find that one, and then care for it. Pour oil on its wounds. Place it in the center of the flock, if you will. And protect it from those wolves that linger and circle outside the flock. In our time together, we are studying Ephesians. So you can turn there if you like, Ephesians chapter 1, since we're going to kind of do an overview here real quickly. Ephesians chapter uh, 1, and we're going to look at just an overview of what the structure of the letter is, just to remind you, just to keep you in mind. This is, this is a universal letter. Paul is writing this letter to hoping that many churches within the region of Asia Minor will read it. It eventually adopted the title to the Ephesians, which probably wasn't in the original letter, wasn't in the original manuscript. But Ephesus was a hub. It was a crossroads for merchants and others who uh, kept that economy of that region going. And it was also a crossroads and a center for pagan worship. And so it also became a, a opportunity then for the gospel to be carried throughout that area if you could get the church there to hear it and grow into maturity. It would be a, a real powerful uh, jump-off point for the rest of Asia Minor. Now, in this letter... 
Paul is addressing in the first three chapters what God has done and accomplished on our behalf. Let me say that again. In the first three chapters, Paul emphasizes what God has accomplished. He emphasizes in chapter 1 that the, that the gospel is a triune work, a work of the triune God. Those whom the Father chose in eternity, the Son has come into the world to redeem, into human history, to redeem fully, accomplishing their salvation at the cross and with his resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit, who regenerates them through the gospel, seals them as, a, as God's possession for, for the, as a guarantee of the redemption yet to be fully realized. We learned that this, uh, this is a gospel that comes to those not because they were looking for it, not because they were especially prone to be good religious people. <laughs> they were not people even uh, seeking the triune God. But the gospel is proclaimed to them by the Apostle Paul. And at the time that they heard the gospel, they were dead in transgressions and sins, we read in chapter 2, in which they were living, they were following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. They were under the enslavement of sin and in bondage to Satan himself. They were walking in a spirit who was still at work in the disobedient. They were by nature deserving of wrath, by nature, because they were in a fallen state. They weren't as humanity designed and created by God, but a, a, in a state fallen from that original design. And God, in his great love for them, who is also rich in mercy, made us alive, he says in Ephesians 2.5, with Christ, even when dead, we were dead on transgressions and sins, and is by grace you have been saved. And he says at the end of that section, uh, not of works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do what? Do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're created in Christ, according to mercy, on the basis of grace alone. We are accepted in the beloved, we are accepted by the Father on behalf uh, in, in, uh, in response to the finished work of Christ and the application of that work by the Holy Spirit. We are new creations in order to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, not us. So we don't work for our salvation, but we have a salvation that works. And this is a very important point. That the gospel, when you fully grasp the gospel, that the implications of the gospel have to do with a transformed life. Most Christians are, have enough of the gospel to be converted, but they have yet to hear the fullness of the gospel, the whole counsel of God, by which they are also transformed, conformed to the image of Christ himself, participating in his life, and that life as a work, a work of love. So Paul is saying uh, here that 
in the first three chapters of, e of Ephesians that God has done this magnificent work. And then in the final three chapters, four, five, and six, he gives us the implications, uh, that which he gives us the commands based upon what God has accomplished. Now, remember that grammatically, the indicative precedes the imperative here, linguistically. We have, we have, we have what God has done. Therefore, when God sets forth the commands of what it looks like to live the Christian life in his son in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's commanding us to do that which he has already empowered and enabled us to do in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So God never commands us to do anything that we are not enabled and empowered by grace through faith and the work of the Spirit to do. That's what we mean. When we say it's indicative, the indicative precedes the imperative. So we are not like the pagans at that time in Ephesus who built temples and offered sacrifices and, and did works of piety to please the gods in hopes of getting their blessing and protection and provision. No, we are people who have been accepted. We are the temple. We are now the living sacrifices, and we are walking in response to that which God has already accomplished for us in his Son, so that we are now in him. There's nothing for us to accomplish because Christ has accomplished it in full on our behalf. Now we are to live as those who are united to him by faith, whose very life of Christ is within us, the very life of Christ is within us, that we're working out in our daily conduct as guided by the love of Christ. So we are living lives that are participating in love. Now, the, the, the weighty thing I want to share with you about this letter today is that as magnificent as this letter is. And of course, it's inspired by the Spirit. And I, and I encourage you, in fact, I beg you to devote your life to, uh, to some degree to mas mastering this letter. Take the time that you study and master the letter to the Ephesians. Read it. Study it. Read commentaries. Read it thoroughly. Pray over it. Ask the Lord to illuminate your heart and your mind to the meaning of Ephesians. And then take that internally and, and work it out into your life. That's what Paul wanted for us, by the way, when he wrote this letter. Now, having said these things in the first three chapters, Paul then brings us to our text today. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 where Paul is concluding this. Now, he ends with a benediction in chapter 3, which is really interesting, because you don't typically hear benedictions except at the end of some kind of a solemn event, right? You don't hear a benediction at the beginning. You hear the benediction at the end. And he concludes chapter 3 with a benediction. You could almost say that the letter ends at chapter 3, and the application of the letter begins in chapter 4. So read, study, and get chapters 1 through and 3 deeply into your, into your heart and mind. Be, 
be uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind in chapters 1 through 3, and then be prepared to walk in what you have transformed, been in, transformed into in 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> yes, yes, it can happen. So let's look at our text. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. Read, let's read that. <clears throat> Without further ado, for this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray also that you be rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he gives this benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more then all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. End quote. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy inspired and inerrant word. Amen. So Paul concludes chapter 3 with the Amen and a benediction. He had just said something significant. And then in the next three chapters, he tells them how to apply it. Apply that which is now indicative of them in the imperatives of the Christian life. But there's a problem. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Because we'd like to think, wouldn't we, that Paul wrote this magnificent letter. I mean, just the, the language here is just heavenly. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's inspired. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's gripping. It's, it's, it's breathtaking in some of the, 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 the news and the, and the way he sets forth the gospel. And the promise for how we can live in love is so glorious in this letter to the Ephesians. And it was written probably a little before, maybe uh, A.D. 62, A.D. 65, 30 years after the resurrection. And then 30 years after that, Paul, uh, John received his revelation from the risen Christ while on the Isle of Patmos, in which he addresses seven churches, including the church at Ephesus, which again is representative of all the churches in Asia Minor, and therefore representative of your church as well, our church as well. And he says this to the church at 
Ephesus. Now, 30 years later, after having written the letter, after Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the risen Christ says this, and John records it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Let me interrupt here. Good news. Sounds great so far, doesn't it? I mean, truly, that would be a church that I'd want to be a part of. He he acknowledges and commends their deeds, their hard work, and their perseverance. They are a church that is clearly theologically sound. They cannot cannot tolerate wicked people. They have an intolerance, which is very unpopular then and now. For wicked people, and they have tested those who came along claiming to be apostles but weren't and found them false. These people have persevered and endured hardships for Christ's own name and have not grown weary. This is a good church. Good, solid church. But something has broken down. They got it. They got Ephesians 1 through 3. But what they failed to do was apply Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So he says in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have, this is your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This church had become defined by good deeds, good work, good discernment, and even become defined by their hatred for false teaching and wicked people. But what they had failed to do was to learn to walk in love. To learn to participate in the life of Christ in them in such a manner as to be defined not by their hatred for false doctrine, but by their love of Christ within them. Verse 7, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we need to hear that today, don't we? To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. End quote. How do we know if we can be victorious in Christ? <clears throat> According to this letter. According to this word from the risen Christ to the church at Ephesus, which is a word to us today by extension. How do we know if we've heard the Spirit? When we realize that we have fallen from the very purpose of the gospel, and that is to participate in the life of Christ in us as measured 
by our power to love. Love is the end result of the gospel. Not just some sentimentality, not some some cheesy, flowery niceness, but a love that endures the cross. A love that is prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel and for others. A love that proceeds as a manifestation of the life of Christ within you. A love, he tells us in our text, that is so wide and long and high and deep that Paul prays fervently that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge in order that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Listen, we can read Ephesians 1 through 3 as important as that truly is. But if we don't take Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 seriously, then we have failed to certainly understand Paul's message in the first three chapters. This letter is to be taken as a whole. It is to be taken within its historic and grammatical uh, context. But what happened here in Ephesus is that the letter that was written to the church in the uh, mid-60s A.D., was taken so far to, to, to a worthy and even commendable degree, but they failed to close the circle. They failed later to fully apply it as measured by their love for Christ and for each other. The failure to love is a failure to understand the gospel. Let me say that again. The failure to love is a failure to understand the gospel, whether it's in the church or in the home or in your daily conduct wherever you go. So what we're called to is union with Christ. Remember, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he uses the phrase, in him. No less than ten times. It's in Christ that we know redemption. It's in Christ that we know resurrected life. Made alive in him. It's in him that we walk doing good works as a evidence of our working out that which God has worked in us. It's in him that we are named within the people of God. We are a new humanity. And the leading characteristic of that humanity is the love of Christ. Now, I can't emphasize this enough. I can't emphasize that we're not talking about some kind of sentimental mockery of love. A lot of people think that if you're just nice to people, you're a loving person. No, we're talking about a sacrificial love that is modeled for us throughout the New Testament by Jesus Christ himself and by his apostles. So we are called to love as Christ loved. 
called to participate in the love of Christ. And it is God who empowers us to do so. Now to him who is able to immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now let me just comment here real quickly. What the apostle is calling you to this morning is he's calling you to live a life beyond your wildest imagination. (laughs) This is a life we can't even imagine, but we can experience. This is not something we can manufacture in ourselves. This is not something we set up as a goal and then write out steps toward that goal. We can't just one day wake up and and decide, well, I'm just going to love today now. No, this, this and love is not the exception. You don't have loving people in the church. You have people who love in the church. We are a people who love. I mean, I've been in enough churches throughout the decades that I, I know that there are some people in the church that are identified, oh, he's a very loving Christian. Well, that's good. <laughs> Hallelujah. But what does that say about the other person next to him? Is, is that person not a loving Christian? In other words, we are not identifying people who love. We are people who love, period. We are to be identified and characterized by people who, who love like Christ loved. Now that is evidenced in throughout the balance of chapters 4 through 6. And let me... Let me just give you a few highlights of that section, and then we'll be done. Then we'll close. So Paul begins chapter 4 then, having been given the power to love through our redeemed and reconciled status with God, through the work of the triune God and the gospel. And so he begins chapter 4 then, says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, therefore, consequently, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of chapters 1 through 3. Be completely humble, he says, and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What God has done is not only reconciled you, redeemed you, and sealed you as his his own possession for a salvation and a redemption yet to be fully realized. He has no less in the now, in the present, empowered you by his spirit to become humble and gentle, patient people who bear with one another in love. In verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Listen, love in the Christian life is always spoken of within the model of Christ. There is no Christian love outside the model and life of Christ. 
We cannot love in ourselves. We love because we are in him. And his life within us produces that love. Let's look at a few more real quickly. Uh, 5.15, be careful, very, very careful then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. We are a people who stand out as those who love in the midst of a day and a society and a world that is evil, fallen. And of course, in chapters 5 and 6, he gives very specific uh, applications to the home. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, husbands, children. Look at the husband. says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. See, there you go again. Love only comes to us, and we only speak of love, and we only act in love within the context of Christ's life within us. And he speaks to fathers again in verse 4, chapter 6. He speaks to slaves. We could translate that and apply that today in how we uh, conduct ourselves on our jobs, both as employers and employees. And in finally in chapter 10, he, he acknowledges that we need to walk in the armor of God. We cannot do spiritual warfare effectively if we're not doing it motivated by love. If we're just doing spiritual warfare so we can be claim to be some kind of a Christian warrior, then we've just stepped out of the lane. Spiritual warfare is not something we do outside of the context of Christian love. We do spiritual warfare, warfare but it's because we love. And truly, loving as Christ's love is the greatest form of spiritual warfare. So we are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We put on the full armor of God. We stand firm. He says that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Which means the sword of the Spirit is not our tongue, but the word of God. And to the degree that we use our tongue to advance the word of God, it's the right use of the tongue. To the degree that we're using it to blame others, to attack others, to slander others, we are misusing that. Now, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And our lips and our tongue and our minds and our bodies and everything is to be given over to speaking and preaching and living the word of God. And we are to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, he says in verse 6, 18 of chapter 6, Be alert and always keeping on praying for all the Lord's people. And then he closes the book, closes this letter with these words in verse 23 of chapter 6. Please note now. <clears throat> Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Well, let's close now with this final admonition, and that is to remember that love, the love of Christ within us, being worked out in our daily conduct, outside the home, within the home, within the church, 
is the end result of the gospel. We know that we understand the gospel because we are experiencing and acting in the power to love. Love is the end game for the gospel. To truly be able to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourself is the very soul, the very purpose, the very essence of our redemption. So may you grow in love, may you walk following God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Now next time in our talk with Ephesians, we will begin to look more closely and more detailed at Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. We'll take what he says verse by verse and make sure that we have it fully integrated into our character so that we can be everything that God would have us to be by providing us this amazing letter to the Ephesians. Amen.